Good morning, everyone. Are we ready to start? Okay. Again, if you can't hear me, hand flailing. Start a new topic today, Brother John James Andrew, and I've entitled this Offender or Defender. J.J. Andrew, the very name elicits emotion and controversy. Brother Andrew, along with Brother Thomas Williams, was a principal defender of unamended doctrine in the early years surrounding the amendment to the statement of faith. His efforts and work are at the same time a source of pride and embarrassment for different members within our fragile community. Branded as the father of the unamended community by the amended, and a brother of extremes by members of both fellowships, association with his name and writings is avoided and discouraged in some unamended circles, while it's championed in others. I think the sign on the lunch counter last night tells you where Arkansas stands. My purpose in this review will be to examine this controversy and this contradiction what factors account for these divergent opinions? And is the controversy regarding Brother Andrew legitimate? Most important, what impact has this divided opinion had upon our fellowship? So I want to start with Brother Andrew's reputation, but first we need to kind of review some facts. Brother Andrew worked alongside Brother Robert Roberts in the publication of the Christadelphian magazine for years until 1894 when he and Robert Roberts went their separate ways. Brother Andrew had been a major contributor to the Christadelphian magazine. He was well known and respected within the Christadelphian community. Henry Selly, in the preface to his second edition of the Temple of Ezekiel's Prophecy, published in 1892, makes note of the assistance of both Brother Andrew and Brother, Brother Roberts in proofreading and revising. Brother Andrew started publishing The Sanctuary Keeper in 1894 and continued it through 1902. And in that publication, he took issue with Robert Roberts and what the Christadelphian magazine was teaching. Now, considering the amendment and the scorn that the amended followers have for Brother Andrew. It's no surprise that his reputation among that group is negative. And there's examples. In a letter from Alfred Nichols and Harry Tennant to the secretary of the amended Continental Reunion Committee back in 1981, they make this comment. We indicated our agreement to the proposals made at the March conference because we understood at that time that all the problems arising out of the J.J. Andrew errors had been examined, and as a consequence, agreement had been expressed on the nature of man, the nature of Christ, and the atonement. The principal cause of the difficulty lies in the strong inferences which our unamended brethren seem to expect us to draw, whereby resurrectional responsibility is directly related to covenant-making. We do not and cannot accept this concept, 
because it appears to us to be the doctrine of J.J. Andrew in another guise. So they differ with us widely on this, and they label it as a J.J. Andrew error. Uh, under the category of J.J. Andrew errors includes the nature of man, the nature of Christ, the atonement, and here specifically addressing uh, the accu accusation that the unamended brethren follow J.J. Andrew doctrine in their belief regarding resurrection or responsibility because we believe it is directly related to covenant making. Also, in the Logos, March 1995, Brother Ferrer criticizes the phrase used by the authors that Brother Andrew is the father of the unamended community. Whilst it is true historically that Brother Williams, as editor of the Advocate magazine, predates the division caused by the teaching of Brother Andrew, the statement was considered representatively as indicating that the Advocate brethren follow the teachings represented by Brother Andrew in the areas of resurrectional responsibility and hereditary alienation. The Advocate community adheres to the teachings which are clearly aligned to those of J.J. Andrew. For example... A person must be baptized for the remission of sins, Adamic and individual. The advocate community continues to teach that we are alienated from God by birth in addition to personal transgressions. And they've got that right. Reporting that Brother Andrew is the father of the unamended community, that the advocate brethren follow Brother Andrew's teachings, and the, the implication the allegation here is that these were somehow new teachings introduced by J.J. Andrew, which is ridiculous. Even within the unamended community, we find Brother Andrew's reputation and association with the amendment commented upon. In Doctrinal Consequences of Clause 24, the way it's written, it almost seems to, uh, to attribute the uh, division and the amendment to what uh, Brother Andrew had written in the Blood of the Covenant. We have cited only a few samples of amended literature and tapes that omit any reference to the fact that the baptized believer becomes a party to the Abrahamic Covenant and consequently an heir to the things covenanted therein. Many more samples could be submitted and are on file in this writer's library. How did this erosion of doctrine take place, talking about the erosion of doctrine within the amended community. The answer lies in the title of a booklet which was published in 1894 in Britain, titled The Blood of the Covenant by Brother J.J. Andrew. The amendment to the Statement of Faith was introduced in 1898 to counteract the Andrew view. Amended writers and teachers since that time, in their zeal to uh, denigrate the Andrew view, have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. The bathwater is the extreme position taken by Brother Andrew. And we'll get more, more into that later. But here again we have the notation of Brother Andrew's extreme view and the amended community's overreaction and error in attempting to counter that view. But also there has been a very clear recognition and support expressed on behalf of Brother Andrew. Brother, uh, Brother Ken McPhee addresses this issue and the motivation of Brother Andrew. In his Christadelphian history, he says, In the 1890s, a very vigorous controversy arose. 
The controversy was principally between Robert Roberts and J.J. Andrew, who had discerned a drift in Robert Roberts' writings in the Christadelphian magazine in 1893. The drift was away from the firmly declared teachings in the writings of Robert Roberts from 1870 to 1883, and J.J. Andrew published excerpts to demonstrate this drift. He began to publish his own magazine, The Sanctuary Keeper, and in the first issue, July 1894, he published an indictment against the teaching of the Christadelphian. This was pretty strong stuff and caused a great resentment against J.J. Andrew among the friends and supporters of Robert Roberts. Again, personal relationships, politics enters into the situation. They always have. They are today. But Brother McPhee here addresses the issue and the motivation of J.J. Andrew. And he seems to hit upon the circumstances leading up to the resentment which resulted, that it was considered an affront to Robert Roberts. Also in the Logos, in a letter to the editor in, editor in 1995, and this letter was written by uh, James Stanton, he says, I've never heard the expression that J.J. Andrew is the father of the unlimited community, but I do know that his views have been for years and currently are shared by many in the, in the unamended the amended have a right to call J.J. Andrew extreme because his views do not agree with theirs, but the unamended hold his views by and large on the purpose of baptism, inherited alienation, including that of Jesus, and the grave-releasing efficacy of the blood of the covenant. And lastly, in the Advocate March of 97, Reflections on a Pioneer, I believe written by uh, Brother Edward Fair. He says, among the prominent names of the pioneers of our faith is one that stands out as a principal defender and activist. This man is more, is more often associated with the controversy surrounding a few of his teachings than he is with the many other contributions that he made. We are speaking to Brother J.J. Andrew. The position of this magazine has always been that the general understanding of Brother Andrew in these areas is consistent with the teachings of Brother John Thomas and the teachings contained in Brother Robert's final work, The Law of Moses. Recognizing the controversy of Brother Andrew's teachings on resurrection or responsibility, but significantly embracing and supporting his teachings on these so-called errors. Now, the challenge in a review of Brother Andrew's impact and contribution to the truth is really sorting out fact from fiction, reputation from reality. I don't know that I, in this presentation, can do that, but perhaps we can fill in some of the pieces. Brother Andrew is perhaps best known for his booklet, The Blood of the Covenant, which was uh, released in 1894. It was a booklet which the author himself said was written to address the subject of atonement. And in the preface of that book, here's what he says. Twenty years ago, the one body passed through a controversial conflict concerning the nature of Jesus Christ at his first appearing. It was then clearly demonstrated that Christ was, by birth, related to condemnation in Adam to the same extent as the rest of the race, and that he was made of the same fallen or sinful nature. It fell to my lot to take a prominent part in the aforesaid conflict, and as a result of it, I wrote the pamphlet entitled The Doctrine of the Atonement. The scriptural principles embodied therein constitute the basis of what I have here written, 
and they are consistently applied to the several steps by which men may pass from condemnation in Adam to immortalization in Christ. Both Brother Andrew and Brother Roberts had worked together some 20 years earlier to oppose the renunciationist controversy. And the renunciationist controversy was basically the introduction of clean flesh, or as they referred to it back in those days as free life teachings. Brother Andrew, as he explains in his preface, was here expounding upon the atonement process and the efficacy of Christ's shed blood, the same thing that he had written before and that Brother Roberts had praised. So he's saying there's nothing new here. This is what we fought for 20 years ago. However, the blood of the covenant received a hostile reception by many in England, and immediately it became a source of contention. Immediately, Brother Andrew and Brother Roberts were pitted against each other's positions. Lines were drawn. Sides were taken. And the topic of resurrection responsibility came, went from an unimportant one, not unimportant, but not one with a lot of attention, and became the focus of attention and controversy. And immediately, allegations of extremes were made against Brother Andrew. Now let's consider that. Let's consider his extremes. When one reads the blood of the covenant, there are some controversial things in the blood of the covenant. And I doubt that any of them were or are new to the Christadelphian community. So among things you'll find in the blood of the covenant is he talks about violent death that has offended people. Now, what is a violent death? It means Christ had to die a violent, a violent death. He had to be sacrificed. It would not be a natural death. They, somebody was not going to grow old and die in their sleep. Their life would be taken, and that's what they refer to as a violent death. Others said Christ didn't have to do that. He talks about eighth-day sin, speculating that Adam and Eve sinned on the eighth day. He talked about Enoch's translation, asserting that maybe Enoch actually wasn't dead, but was, pre was preserved somewhere. And you hear those same controversies today. And then, of course, he talked about resurrection responsibility, which he said is only for the servants of the Lord. Only those in covenant relationship. Now, these so-called controversial interpretations were within the Christadelphian community in Brother Andrew's day, and they're with us today. And I would dare say that most of us here really don't get upset if others in our community believe that maybe Enoch is preserved somewhere awaiting Christ's return, or if God intended the death sentence upon Adam to be immediate, or a dying state. I'm sure we have opinions, but we don't separate over, over, over these kind of things. Generally, they are seen as interpretations of less consequence than the fundamental principles of the faith. And even regarding resurrection or responsibility, even though we as a community do not believe that God will raise those, side, those outside of covenant relationship for the purpose of punishment, our community particularly then traditionally determined not to make this subject a matter of fellowship. And it was not made a matter of fellowship up until the amendment. 
they had the we had they had the unamended what would now be those that remain unamended always had the attitude that if you believe God may that he might do something like that fine don't teach it don't preach it as doctrine don't don't push it because we all do not believe that so we recognize okay there is controversy in the booklet the blood of the covenant However, controversy in pioneer writings does not begin and end with Brother Andrew. Have we not been equally consumed by topics of controversy from so-called respected pioneer writers on such topics as the identification of the sheep and the goats, the post-millennial rebellion, the second resurrection? How, how have we reacted to Dr. Thomas's interpretation of the angels that sinned in Elpis, Israel? or his third-class resurrection in anastasis. And is our community avoiding Robert Roberts because of his stand and statements regarding uh, resurrection of responsibility in Christian demonstration? He said, when called from darkness to light by the preaching of the gospel, whether they submit to that gospel or refuse submission, they are not their own. They neither live nor die to themselves as formerly. They have passed into a special relationship to deity in which their lives, good or evil, come under divine supervision and form the basis of a future accountability unknown in their state of darkness at which God winked. Despite these controversies, we in the unamended community have not discouraged the readings of these works, nor have we distanced ourselves from these authors. You recognize error and you treat it as such. Back to our back to Brother Andrew's extremes. I'm not aware that the unamended use the term error in relation to Brother Andrew, although some who call themselves uh, unamended have. Those familiar with the blood of the covenant recognize contra recognize the controversy in the violent death, the eighth day, Enoch being translated, yes. And some use the word extreme in regard to Brother Andrew's latter stand when he finally said, and this is ten years after he wrote the blood of the covenant and six years after the amendment, and he had a stroke, and he said, God cannot raise. However, the amended consciously used the word error and not only apply it to resurrection or responsibility, but also to our foundation beliefs on hereditary alienation, baptism for remission of Adamic sin, the nature of man, the nature of Christ, and the atonement. The amended have purposely associated the name of Brother Andrew with what they call unamended error, and some obviously refer to Brother Andrew as the father of the unamended community, as though we adopted and came across those beliefs at the point that Brother Andrew wrote about them. As though those were new beliefs introduced by him, again, ridiculous and easy to disprove. One of the problems which contributes to the confusion is a lack of familiarity with the actual writings of Brother Andrew. And I might suggest that many unamended likewise are unfamiliar with the blood of the covenant and other works by Brother Andrew. If all one knows about the man is that he is considered controversial and extreme, 
that he is accused of limiting the power of God, well, of course, we're bound to be cautious, but the reputation exceeds the tone of the altar. So I want to take just a few minutes and look at the blood of the covenant, specifically at the part where he addresses resurrection of responsibility. This is what upset everybody in England. The dead in Adam have not been brought under the law of the spirit of life, and therefore they are not amenable to its retribution. They have never been freed from the law of sin and death, and therefore the death on which they have entered is endless. To bring them out of the grave for further punishment would be to terminate one endless death for the purpose of inflicting upon them another. Cannot God raise anyone and for any purpose? No, because to do so would stultify his own word. God has chosen to regulate his actions in regard to death and resurrection by law. He has decreed that death must follow sin and that such death can only be terminated or averted by justification from the sin which caused it. The endless subjection to death of unjustified sinners is essential to the fulfillment of the law of sin and death. And on the other hand, the deliverance from the grave of those who have died after being justified, whether faithful or unfaithful, is equally necessary to the fulfillment of the law of the spirit of life. To stop the operation of the law of sin and death without justification from sin for the purpose of applying a feature confined to the law of the spirit of life would introduce confusion and be a violation of justice. It would also destroy the distinction between the two laws of an antagonistic character. God has shown both by word and deed that strict adherence to his own laws is a supreme feature of his character. People went crazy. The question which each of you need to ask yourselves, is Brother Andrew's position here offensive? Is he limiting the power of God or is he recognizing God's laws and character? Does his belief, in fact, have anything to do with those in covenant relationship, those who most certainly will appear before the judgment seat of Christ? And does it matter to you that God may, by his independent power outside of the laws given us, decide to do something else? In addition, the central, the amended, felt that this warranted amending the statement of faith and excluding from fellowship all who would not confess that resurrection responsibility was related to light and not to covenant making. But again, traditionally the unamended had been content to consider this at the most an open question, but now the matter is so convoluted with changed positions on the part of the amended to support resurrection responsibility of the enlightened rejecter that we really can't say that anymore. Nevertheless, there seems to be a prevailing belief that Brother Andrew, and specifically the blood of the covenant, somehow caused the division. It was obviously a catalyst. It set in motion, it brought to the forefront, controversy between brethren already holding divergent views. Brother Andrew was not content to let this wide divergence of belief lie. And his forceful contention that God would not raise any outside of covenant relationship was a challenge to those who believed otherwise. Uh, note, in the Blood of the Covenant, the Blood of the Covenant was published in February 1894. 
Robert Roberts responded that same year with a pamphlet called Resurrection to Condemnation. And notice what he says. He says, It is with no pleasure that I write an answer to the pamphlet that has just been published by Brother J.J. Andrew of London, entitled Blood of the Covenant. The personal respect which I hold him, the number of good things that the pamphlet contains, and the advantage given to the enemies of the truth by conflict among its friends, and the discouragement and distress that must necessarily be caused by many who are waiting for Christ by the flood of mystifying technicalities let loose upon them from quarters where edification ought to be looked for. So Brother Roberts, in talking about the blood of the covenant, he says two things. He says it contains good things and also mystifying technicalities. Thomas Williams also notes the reaction, and he enters the debate. So in the Advocate, in June, again, 1894, this is what he says. He says, what is the matter with you over there? Who is this man that you are venting your cruelty on? Is all this fuss because he does not believe in the resurrection of some out of Christ? No, that cannot be. For some in nearly every ecclesia have not believed that ever since the revival of the truth in this 19th century, and no such fuss as this has been raised. No, it is not because he did not believe in the resurrection of some out of Christ, but it is because he made that belief offensive by continually forcing it upon the attention of the ecclesia and has set out a pamphlet giving vent to his belief. Well, since the difference between him, between him and yourselves was not considered an essential one, it would have been wiser on his part not to make it offensive. Sorry, that's where that is. So, whereas Robert Roberts referred to it as mystifying technicalities, Thomas Williams says, well, it's an unessential belief made offensive, but certainly nothing new. Notice, the blood of the covenant forcefully presented Brother Andrew's view, but at this point, the major players are labeling his presentation strictly as a technicality and an unessential belief. But the controversy continued and it grew and positions hardened and positions changed. The amendment to the Statement of Faith was introduced in 1898, four years later, and the Christadelphian body was divided. Now, in, in response to Brother Andrew making his belief offensive, the Central not only made their belief offensive, but they elevated it to a matter of fellowship and split the community. Now, you know there's more to it than Brother Andrew's booklet that would result in such a, a, a terrible outcome. And we note that Brother Andrew maintains a prominent role in the following years, but as we examine his part, what you need to consider individually, is he an offender or a defender or both? So I want to focus on this question. Is Brother Andrew to be considered an offender or a defender? In truth, it's really an assessment of conscience to be made by each of us individually and will probably be shaped by where we stand on his, his beliefs. So to help us assess this complicated man, I want to look at three areas. Number one, Brother Andrew's change in view and his public challenge to Robert Roberts Number two, Brother Andrew's relationship with Thomas Williams. And number three, his last years, a time when, that I have labeled fighting with his own. So number one, Brother Andrew's change in view 
and his challenge to Robert Roberts. This is an important topic, not only in understanding the development and maturing of Brother Andrew's understanding on resurrection responsibility, but maybe in understanding the extent of the negative reaction in England against him. Brother Andrew was one of them. He was a respected contributor to the Christadelphian magazine. He was a respected assistant to Robert Roberts in his duties as editor. Uh, he was author of what we know today as the real Christ, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, which is still used by the amended community. And for him to forcefully present a viewpoint on a controversial topic was unpopular in that the recent, in, in that the then recent trend orchestrated by Robert Roberts was going the opposite direction of where J.J. Andrew was. So for him to challenge Robert Roberts and point out that he had drifted from an earlier correct position to an erroneous position was just perhaps more than Robert Roberts' supporters could bear. Particularly when Brother Andrew had earlier been on record and in seeming agreement with Robert Roberts' current stand. Now, that's the interesting part. Now, we know The, the Real Christ was published in 1870. It was 24 years uh, earlier. And in that book, Bro Brother Andrew here discusses resurrectional responsibility. And he offers the traditional understanding as it had been traditionally laid out by Dr. Thomas. He says, all will not be under the title of all will not be resurrected. All men, however, will not then be raised from the dead. For where no law is, there is no transgression. And as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. Daniel is therefore quite in harmony with the other prophets when he predicts that only some or many of them that sleep shall awake. The many will comprise all those who, by a knowledge of God's revealed truth, have been brought into a state of responsibility from the time of Abel to the second appearing of Jesus Christ. Again, the standard line introduced by Dr. Thomas is uh, uttered 24 years earlier. Robert Roberts takes note of this, what he calls this change in attitude. And early in the debate between the two, uh, held in April uh, 1894, uh, which is only two months after Blood of the Covenant was published, uh, he throws that up. He says, We have in past times dwelt together in unity as regards the particular issue raised tonight. And if there is any change at rest, you know where, with Brother Andrew, who thinks he has discovered some new things he used to think were true are not true. He was not always of this mind. His change of mind might not have necessitated the present meeting, but he has taken steps which involve an attempt to coerce us into the reception of his views. Brother Andrew responds, Reference has been made to my change of attitude. Yes, a change from a position I never deem strong to one I do deem strong. So here we have one of their own in a position of service and respect calling them on their emphasis and in turn being reminded that he once stood there too. And even though Brother Andrew described his original statement as never deemed strong, it was known. And it was again thrown up to him in 1905 by Thomas Williams. Well, not thrown up, but he was again reminded of it by Thomas Williams. 
By 1905, Brother Andrew had, as a result of years of conflict, debate, and illness, hardened his position to declare that God could not raise anyone to life, not in covenant relationship. First of all, first time in the blood of the covenant, he said, no, they won't, he won't do it. Now he got to the point where he said he could not. Following the example, actually he was following the example of the central uh, brethren. He, he was going to cut some people off. And he made this issue a basis of fellowship. And at this point, he refused to fellowship Thomas Williams and submitted for publication in The Advocate his reason for declining uh, to meet. And Brother Williams published Brother Andrew's statement inserting answers after significant points or accusations. So in an exchange of views in the uh, July 1905 Advocate, first we have the statement of Brother J.J. Andrew. He says, Evidence has been advanced in proof that there is no resurrection outside the Abrahamic covenant. When in London, you partially recognize this truth, but you also taught that God may or will raise some Gentiles for punishment or for testimony. Brother Williams responds, If you mean by this truth that the resurrection which is a subject matter of the gospel is through Jesus only, and that only those in covenant relation are the subject thereof, I not only recognize this when in London, but long before you did, and when you were opposed to it. So he's going back to the 24 years earlier. Indeed, I recognized it at my immersion, and as I told Brother Roberts, learned it through reading 12 lectures. Now, what does that tell you about Brother Roberts going back, back and forth? When I first heard that you were discussing the question in London, I concluded from my knowledge of your position previously that you were contending for your old position still, and was under this impression... And it was under this impression I commenced reading the blood of the covenant, by which, to my surprise, I learned of your change. So, you, you, we, we've got to admit, J.J. Andrew once believed one thing and he changed. Robert Roberts once believed one thing and he changed. He says, when Thomas Williams says, I learned it through reading 12 lectures from Robert Roberts. And again, that was the position uh, opposite to what Brother Roberts was taking at that time. And it just points out the very open nature and the mixed and the contradictory understanding of this issue within the Brotherhood in that era. So what did cause Brother Andrew to go from a general acceptance of knowledge bringing responsibility to, number one, limiting appearance at the judgment seat of Christ to the covenanted only, and then, later, limiting resurrection to the covenanted uh, only. Brother Andrew's position is perhaps best summarized by an explanation he offers in the March 1895 Sanctuary Keeper. He says, It was this and similar unsound arguments which satisfied me that the belief in resurrection out of Christ was untenable. First it was said that any and Adam could be raised through the blood of Christ. And then it was contended that even Christ was not raised through his own blood. When such contradictory and unscriptural reasoning is required to bolster up any tenet, it is obviously based on an unsound foundation. It was to me quite a revelation to find 
that a fundamental truth concerning Christ's death and resurrection could be so perverted by those professing his name. And perceiving the danger involved, duty compelled me to oppose it and to use every opportunity for setting forth the teaching of the scriptures. And brethren, the unadmitted head community has continued that same thought and that same fight to this day. So in reviewing his early standing, his advocacy for his new understanding, was he an offender or a defender? I want to next look at brother relationships, uh, relationship with brother Thomas Williams, because there's a lot of confusion on that, and we won't get uh, we, we won't we won't get through this today. But brother Andrews and brother Williams both recognize, are both recognized as primary defenders of unamended beliefs, and yet we often hear that brother Williams did not approve of brother Andrews and that Brother Williams labeled him as extreme. And that's something that we need to, uh, need to understand. Because sometimes there's this ominous tone associated with it, implying disapproval by Brother Williams of Brother Andrew and disapproval of the blood of the covenant, which was not the case. What we actually see in a review is initial acceptance and support for Brother Andrew. Over the period 1894 to 1905, there is a change in position, but it, the change is on Brother Andrew's part. It was Brother Andrew who refuses to fellowship Brother Williams, and it is at this point that Brother Williams speaks of Brother Andrew's extreme claim and fellowship attitude. Let's go back to early 1894 when the Blood of the Covenant was published. We've already reviewed Robert Roberts' comment, held Brother Andrew in personal respect. Pamphlet contained good things, except for the mystifying technicalities. Brother Williams, we've already discovered, was in agreement with Brother Andrew on the relationship between resurrection and responsibility and covenant relationship. He said, Brother Andrew, I believe this before you did. Brother Williams came out in support of Brother Andrew and sharply criticized his English brethren for their cruel treatment. In the uh, June 1894 advocate, under the title of What's the Matter with You Over There, we've seen uh, a, uh, uh, a part of it we recognize what Brother Williams' true position was. What is the matter with you over there? Wait a little bit, brother. Give that man you have at your feet, whom you are kicking, bruising, and stabbing, a chance to breathe. What is the matter with you over there? Who is this man that you are venting your cruelty on? The J.J. Andrew, who has been a faithful and able and loving brother, lo, these many years... Now let me beg of you to consider if all these false and ridiculous charges have not increased one wrong into a legion. For here you come running and rushing and stumbling over each other to charge this brother with limiting the power of the Holy One of Israel, with denying the supremacy of God, with sitting in judgment and assuming God's prerogative, with insulting God, etc. Is it that one limits the power of God of Israel, of the God of Israel, because he thinks God's own arrangements according to his revealed plan is so and so? 
Are we at baptism delivered from anything we receive from Adam? Your answers show that the complaint of the circular was not without foundation, for you ridicule the very thought of Adam's sin being imputed to us. In this excited assault upon Brother Andrew, you have been cutting and slashing till your own positions you occupied when in a normal state have been abandoned and the most reckless statements made. I received his book, read it carefully, agreed with many things it contained, differed from many other things. One thing, however, impressed me, and that was that a becoming spirit, which all his writings show to be characteristic of the man, pervades the book throughout. As it is, your duty is to recall the false things you have imputed to him and escape the dangerous result of bearing false witness against your neighbor. We can't read that and conclude anything other than, at this point, Brother Williams was an ardent supporter of uh, Brother Andrew. I don't think we have uh, time to go on. and uh, I know some of you may not be here tomorrow. If you're interested in this subject, uh, this presentation and all of the uh, overheads are in a booklet in the uh, bookstore uh, titled the same, J.J. Andrew, Offender or uh, Defender. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. That bell seemed to ring awfully quick. <laughs> On J.J. Andrew, we had uh, said we were going to look at three different areas. And the first one was uh, Brother Andrew's change and his public challenge to Robert Roberts, which we completed yesterday. And we had just uh, actually begun Brother Andrew's relationship with Thomas Williams. And in fact, this... Uh, this is the last page of the last slide that we had up from uh, what is the matter with you over there. And again, uh, Brother Thomas says, I received his book, read it carefully, agreed with many things it contained, differed from many other things. One thing, however, impressed me, and that was that a becoming spirit, which all his writings show to be characteristic of the man, pervades the book throughout, as it is, your duty, and he's talking to the English brethren, is to recall the false things you have imputed to him and escape the dangerous results of bearing false witness against your neighbor. I'm hearing some feedback here. Are you hearing it? Oh. It takes a little bit to warm up here. Yeah, okay. The point is, Brother Williams certainly does not appear to consider Brother Andrew's beliefs, nor his pamphlet, The Blood of the Covenant, to be dangerous or subversive. Although, as reviewed earlier, he did feel that Brother Andrew had uh, made his position on what uh, Brother Thomas considered a non-essential belief offensive by forcing it upon everyone's attention. 
However, what follows over the next few years eventually changes that relationship, and that's what we want to get into. The amendment was introduced four years after the Blood of the Covenant came out, 1898. Brother Williams' advice to the English brethren was not heeded, and the Christadelphian body was divided, and not only divided, but divided into very antagonistic and defensive camps. It was indeed a time of bitterness and open strife. In October 1900, Brother Williams comments upon the state of the household in England and the advocate in an article called The Rallying Point, or A Rallying Point. He said, In view of the divided state of the brethren of the British Isles, it has become difficult for one to go from one place from place to place without offense to one side or the other. This deplorable state of things has arisen largely of late from disputes and differences on Adamic condemnation and justification in Christ and the third class resurrection theory. The result of the existence there of the existence here is uh, no less than seven different bodies, partial inspirationist, renunciationist, extremist on third class resurrection, those who agree with the latter party but who allow doubters, those who do not make the third class matter a test of fellowship, and those called the Andrew party. What a wilderness to travel in. The brethren in America have succeeded in keeping these troubles from their shores. At present, most of them stand firmly on the old foundation occupied for 40 years, the old Birmingham Statement of Faith and Basis of Fellowship. So, as you know, Brother, Brother Williams made, I think it was four different trips over there trying to resolve this. He could not go from one place to another without offending the other group. I, I fear we're, we're getting to a point where maybe that is re being repeated for us uh, today. This charged atmosphere in England did change the brotherhood and eventually affected the relationship between Brother Williams and Brother Andrew. In 1905, Brother Williams published An Exchange of Views in which he revealed that Brother Andrew had refused to fellowship him. And it was at that point that he labeled Brother Andrew extreme in his claim and fellowship attitude. Now, much of this is recorded in the Life and Works of Thomas Williams, published by the Advocate Committee in 1974. Now, as a preface to this article, uh, the, the editors or committee wrote, the following article, An Exchange of Views Between Brother J.J. Andrew and Brother Thomas Williams, is reproduced here in part in order to correct the impression or belief long held by many that these two brethren held and taught the same ideas relating to resurrection or responsibility. As this article demonstrates, this was not so. They did not agree, and they were not in fellowship one with another. Now, I take exception to this. Let us examine this claim. They said they were going to correct the impression and the belief long held that they agreed with one another, saying that they did not agree, that they were not in fellowship one with another. What are they telling us? They never agreed. 
are more particular. That Brother Williams was distancing himself from Brother Andrew? In fact, unfortunately, I think this preface is at best misleading. At, at best. It misleads by implying long-term disagreement or lack of fellowship between these, these brethren, whereas the article itself, when read, provides the necessary clarity for people to decide on their own what that relationship was. And again, Brother Andrew wrote to explain why he had declined to fellowship Brother Williams, and Brother Williams responds to that. Brother Andrew starts. He says, My reasons for declining to fellowship you when in London the early part of last year were given you in writing. And then Brother Williams responds, We are sorry, however, that he still strives to justify his extreme claim and fellowship attitude on the question of resurrection, namely, that God has so circumscribed his power by the law of the resurrection that it is impossible for him in the future to raise anyone to life again for any purpose who is not in the everlasting covenant. And moreover, that that acceptation of this claim must be made a basis of fellowship. This article appears in the July 1905 Advocate, and it appears that Brother Andrew declined fellowship on the previous year, declined to fellowship Brother Williams the previous year, 1904. Now, this action occurring in 1904 is what Brother Williams is here referring to as Brother Andrew's extreme claim and fellowship attitude. It is Brother Andrew's pardoning of position in 1904 that Brother Williams objects to. And it is at this point that they did not agree and they were not in fellowship one with another. However, that was an action taken strictly by Brother Andrew. Later in the article, Brother Williams says, he says, from the beginning of the controversy, and he's addressing this to J.J. Andrew, you had appeared publicly in agreement with me. You heard my, my address and answers to questions in Barnesbury, and you afterwards voted to invite a return visit. Then suddenly you became a busy opponent. In this you have gone to the extreme, impaired your usefulness, and humiliated those who defended you before you changed from the happy medium to the presumptuous extreme. He says, I have been defending you. What was that beginning? He says, from the beginning. 1894, when he wrote The Blood of the Covenant. Ten years earlier. Ten years of active support. Another thing this, that this article makes very clear is the extreme position of Brother Andrew in 1904 and 1905 was a change from what was believed and taught and written in the blood of the covenant. Thomas Williams says, You admit then that the change in your fellowship attitude was a result of a change in your belief, and thus you admit that it was through no fault of mine. You need not date your former attitude as far back as the writing of the blood of the covenant, for it was in the year 1900. In other words, saying you still confirm this in 1900 when you wrote me that if one believed that God by his independent power outside the law of resurrection might raise some others you would not consider it a barrier to fellowship it was not long before our last visit to London that you helped to quiet a disturbance in Camberwell 
by showing the brethren there that they were going too far in making a test of fellowship upon the basis of limiting the independent power of God to the resurrection of those only who are in covenant relation. Your change was a very sudden one. So Brother William says here, you admit this is a change. This is not what we agreed on in the blood of the covenant. And this is no fault of mine, he says. It came late and it came sudden. Brother Williams was not withholding fellowship from Brother Andrew. It was a one-way thing on Brother Andrew's part. Brother Williams ends his article by saying, I had nothing but a brother's love for you. And he signs his response, Affectionately, your brother and the Lord. So, was the preface to this article correct? That they did not agree that they were not in fellowship one with another? I think it required much more explanation than that. Because from 1894 to 1904, they did agree and they were in fellowship. Brother Andrew died in 1907. And for the last four years of his life, that period when he disfellowshipped Brother Williams, Brother Williams never indicated any kind of disfellowship on his part for Brother Andrew. And the extent of Brother Brother Williams' affection and support for Brother Andrew, I think is shown in the the notice that Brother Williams wrote in The Advocate when, uh, 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 when Brother Andrew died. And this is that notice. Brother J.J. Andrew dead. Dead, death has at last claimed a devoted, faithful, and able brother. Our beloved and highly esteemed brother, J.J. Andrew, died early in the month of June. Perhaps of him it can be said, as Paul did of himself, for him to die was gain, since for five or six years he had been sadly afflicted with paralysis, affecting him physically, mentally, and vocally. This affliction, almost at its first attack, brought to a, close, uh, to a close a long life of usefulness in the truth, and as we believe, almost terminated that probation, which will receive the approval of the Lord when the time of dispensation of reward comes. It was up to that time, it could be said of our dear brother, that he had fought a good fight, he had kept the faith, he had finished his course. The lingering days that followed till death came may not be counted. For nearly 40 years, Brother J.J. Andrew has been a power of good in the work of the truth, both by pen and by tongue, and especially by example, as seen in a life that adorned the doctrines he was so well able to forcefully yet calmly and logically set forth. In the battles which the Christadelphian fought for years with the purity of the truth, who did more able and valiant work than Brother J.J. Andrew? While others rushed in and perhaps vehemently met the first onslaughts, it was Brother Andrew's calm, logical work of clearing up all difficulties and removing all obstacles that helped more than anything else to fortify and establish the strongholds of the truth. He was so constituted that whatever he took in hand to do, it must be done thoroughly. He was a veritable embodiment of precision, and so long as he was spared affliction, he was able to largely counteract the tendency of this characteristic to run to extremes. Toward the latter part of his life, the Christadelphian world had the sad opportunity of witnessing how suddenly friends could become bitter foes. But aggravating as some of the tongues that set on fire of Gehenna, our dear brother, who is now at rest from it all, 
never retaliated, but made it manifest that he had well learned the lesson of the Master, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. Take your rest, dear brother Andrew, in death silent and undisturbed repose. Our turn may come ere long, but our prayer is that when the trumpet shall sound to, uh, to wake the Lord's sleeping ones, we shall be worthy, as we believe you are, to receive the longed-for words from the lips of our absent Lord. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. So we ask again, is Brother Andrew an offender or a defender or both? This last section I've entitled Fighting with His Own, and it covers that latter period. The difficult part, Brother Andrew's break with the old foundation, as Brother Williams referred to it, in other words, those who followed the unamended Birmingham Statement of Faith and were not going to change it to say that God could not, under any circumstances, do something outside of the law of the covenant. How could such a staunch defender, who, who very clearly and early recognized the excesses arising out of the central defenders, break fellowship with those with whom he was in agreement on the principles of the truth. By changing his position and insisting that God had so circumcised, uh, circumscribed excuse me, his power that it was impossible for him to resurrect anyone outside of covenant relationship. And then to elevate that belief to a test of fellowship. Brethren, let us be careful what we elevate to a test of fellowship. And I don't know that I can answer that question as to how that could happen. But allow me to suggest some possible explanations, including some insights from both Brother Williams and Brother Ken McPhee on this matter. And with some boldness, I suggest that this change was predictable. Where such conflict and animosity exists, there results a hardening of positions. There results a withdrawal into camps. There results a losing of perspective. And this phenomena is explained clearly by Brother Islip Collier in his book, Principles and Proverbs. The question of making resurrection... That's not the right one. Brethren, I must have skipped one. Oh, this actually is just, uh, uh, Brother Thomas Williams referred to what he had said in 1900. He said, it was in 1900 you were still maintaining that correct position. And this is the actual position of, of J.J. Andrew, where, when he said, the question of making resurrection of Gentile of making resurrection of Gentiles out of Christ to test of fellowship depends on the way it is held. If it be recognized that Adam brought death upon the entire race by his sin, that baptism into Christ frees men from the permanent power of death, and that such of the baptized as die will rise through their relationship to Christ, but that it is possible God may, by his independent power, raise some others, I should not consider it a barrier to fellowship. But if it be contended that some Gentiles out of Christ will be raised on the same basis as those in Christ, this contention would be a barrier to fellowship. 
So again, offender or defender. Back to principles and proverbs. Under the title of the weightier matters, when there is a failure to maintain the principle of balance, the greatest danger is that the very first principles of right conduct may be neglected, while all attention is bestowed upon matters of little importance, which for the moment chance to loom large. This indifference to essentials and scrupulous whiting of exteriors is such a common failing of humanity that we can gather lessons from almost all parts of history. The mind grows along the lines of its activities. That is why men always tend to exaggerate the importance of matters to which they have given much attention or which has been the subject of their discussion. In the most natural manner, they would exaggerate the importance of these subjects while the essential principles on which they agreed received no attention. And it's kind of frightening how accurate and applicable Brother Collier's observation is. In a, you know, in addition to this human condition, this human process, Brother Williams publicly attributes the influence of others as a factor in Brother Andrew's abrupt change. In the exchange of views, he attributes the sudden change in 1904 and the subsequent failure on Brother Andrew's part to fellowship him, fellowship him to the influence of what he said was a few excitable sisters. He said, it was just before my arrival when a few excitable sisters were using their influence in favor of the extreme attitude that you suddenly changed. I was not blind to the fanaticism of excited sisters. I saw your weak condition and I told the truth and gave the facts when to shield you I offered the real explanation, feminine fanaticism was my explanation, though you, the unconscious victim, could not be expected to see it. He had had a stroke. Uh, it affected him in many, many ways. Brother Williams depicts Brother Andrew as unduly influenced while in a weak condition. Brother Williams had kept his readership informed of uh, Brother Andrew's poor health, and here he seems to attribute manipulation as one of the causes for his, his, his change. And just as we read in Brother Andrew's advocate, Brother William's advocate notice regarding Brother Andrew's death uh, and the affliction affecting the last few years of his life, Brother Ken, McPhee, Brother Ken McPhee comments likewise upon Brother Andrew's health as a factor in his troubled last years. In his writing, A Christadelphian History, he says, Brother Andrew had been an excellent student of Scripture and had been a tower of strength to Robert Roberts as his assistant in the work of publishing the Christadelphian. As we read his writings produced in his early years, the 1870s and 80s, we find his reasoning crisp, crisp and clear. In his last years, he died at 67 in 1907. It is evident that his thinking was not as consistent as it had been formerly. He had had a stroke which seriously undermined his strength. It was in these last years that he assumed and defended the position that Thomas Williams referred to as Brother J.J. Andrews' extremes. We have believed for many years that the continuing effort by the amended brotherhood to blame the division of 1898 on Brother J.J. Andrew is a gross miscarriage of justice. The charitable thing would be to appreciate the constructive work done by Brother Andrew in his good years and with forbearance extend compassion to him for the difficulties he suffered in his last years. Well, you know, that's probably enough history. Where does it leave us? 
what is the sum total of this matter? As we look back, should Brother Andrew have just left this alone? After all, Thomas Williams said, it's a non-essential belief, or at least it was at that time. Uh, I'm sorry, that was Brother Robert Roberts. Brother Thomas Williams said, yeah, yeah, that it's not essential, but you've made it offensive by pressing it. Or better yet, couldn't Brother Andrew have been less forceful, tried friendly persuasion rather than just outright stating what he believed the truth to be, appeal to the masses rather than be seen as attacking? Well, before you judge this, please consider Resurrectional responsibility was only the tip of the iceberg of growing divergent views. That same year, 1894, Brother Andrew and the sanctuary keeper documented significant changes in teaching of the Christadelphian. And in, in, the, opening article, okay, uh, in the opening article of the July 1894 sanctuary keeper, he says, the controversy on resurrection to judgment has made manifest a wide divergence of beliefs in the meaning of Christ's sacrifice and the benefits now derivable from it. These are not subordinate but vital components of the truth. Brother Williams in What's the Matter with You over there took note, and he took the critics to task. Remember he said, the question really is, does baptism have anything to do with Adamic sin? Your answers, people in England, show that the complaint of the circular was not without foundation, for you ridicule the very thought of Adam's sin being imputed to us. A strange thought for Thomas Williams to hear other Christadelphians say. A showdown was inevitable. If Brother Andrew hadn't assumed that task, someone else would have, and I feel quite sure that would have fallen to Brother Thomas Williams and the U.S. Ecclesias, who were for the most part at one with Brother Andrew on Adamic condemnation and justification in Christ. But even considering the implications, couldn't Brother Andrew have been less forceful? Again, persuade rather than attack. Couldn't he, he have said, please? You know, that was not the style of his day, nor is it a style associated with the truth. Keep in mind, the blood of the covenant was not written just to address resurrectional responsibility. In the preface, he says, nature of Christ, nature of man, principles of atonement, and resurrectional responsibility. The principles of the truth have always been presented and defended with uncompromising passion. Look at the prophets. Look at Christ and the apostles. How they stood up to the scribes and the Pharisees and the Israelis. Of Christ, it said, never man spake like this man. Now, I'm certainly not putting Brother Andrew in the class of Christ and the Apostles. But let's look at his contemporary, look at Brother Andrew's contemporaries. Look at Dr. Thomas. Even Robert Roberts describes him as, quote, a person of self-reliance with an independence almost to the point of eccentricity. Dr. Thomas was described as intolerant of ignorance and uncommonly frank. Consider Robert Roberts and Thomas Williams' style. They didn't mince words. 
political correctness was not a consideration in those days. These brethren were all passionate and zealous for the truth. And Brother Andrew's approach here could be no less. Putting aside the charges, the reputation, and the history, you know, perhaps it's indeed our personal reaction to Brother Andrew's main theme as related to resurrectional responsibility that determines our individual assessment. Are we offended when he says, cannot God raise anyone for any purpose? No, because to do so would stultify his own word. God has chosen to regulate his actions in regard to death and resurrection by law. Is that offensive? If you believe that God surely will raise some for reasons other than judgment, then you might find that statement offensive. But are you offended that a brother should so interpret Scripture? Most on both sides of the aisle would agree that God can't lie. God cannot break his oath with Abraham. God can't decide to dispense with his original plan of a millennial reign on this earth. Why? Is it because we feel a need to limit the power of God? Are we saying God is incapable? No. What we are saying is that in revealing himself and his plan to us, God has declared attributes and arrangements which we believe to be true, and not only true, but sure. And that was Brother Andrew's position, and really is our, our position. So even if someone finds himself on the other side of this issue, is this truly a barrier to fellowship where they wouldn't fellowship Brother Andrew? Keep in mind, up until 10 years after publishing uh, this statement, the uh, Blow of the Covenant, and Brother Andrew still said, you know, I, I still would not consider it a barrier to fellowship if someone would believe that God may. Brother Andrew was very much in line with what the amended in America believed, and many of which still hold as our communal response. And certainly, it is what the title unamended is identified with and stands for. In 1904, ten years after the blood of the covenant, six years after the amendment and the separation of the central, Brother Andrew left that position and made his belief a test of fellowship. And that decision was and is disappointing. And we would agree it is rightly perceived as extreme. In so doing, he went to the same extreme that the central fellowship had adopted some six years earlier. In 1898, Birmingham Ecclesia issued a dictum that disfellowshipped thousands who would not agree with them that there was scriptural justification that light brings responsibility and not covenant relationship. They declared that to join and remain with them, one must reject farmer brothers and sisters. And surprisingly, though they declared this an essential belief that determined fellowship, no rebaptism was necessary. And yet, even today, many unamended appear less concerned with the position of the central, amended com uh, uh, central and amended committee than they are with Brother Andrew. 
But what's the impact? What's the result? Perhaps these labored attempts to disassociate the unadmitted committee from Brother Andrew have had an unanticipated and a negative impact. How has this distancing been interpreted by our youth, by our community? Could oft-repeated concern and disapproval of Brother Andrew have given unintentional support and credibility to the amended community's slant on Brother Andrew, that he is to be associated with erroneous beliefs? Are our expressions of disapproval of Brother Andrew balanced by our public recognition of his role as defender of pre-amendment Christadelphian beliefs? Remember, labeled as J.J. Andrew error are those things that we hold tightly to. Hereditary alienation. We, we call it Adamic condemnation. Baptism for remission of sins, both Adamic and individual. The nature of man, the nature of Christ. Disassociation with and condemnation of Brother Andrew by the amended community seems a logical, if not a tactical, response. But I believe, brothers and sisters, that we risk creating confusion and harm to our household if we are perceived as distancing ourselves from the elements of faith that the amended have so persistently and unfortunately successfully associated with the name of J.J. Andrew under the title of error. The beliefs are rightfully associated with him. They were his beliefs. They were the beliefs of many pre-amendment Christadelphians, and they are the beliefs associated with the unamended community today. But we recall Brother McPhee's history and the notation regarding Brother Robert's drift. I'd like to review some of these indictments of the drift so you can see what was it that caused J.J. Andrew to say, that's it. I'm breaking away from Robert Roberts. I'm breaking away from the Christadelphian magazine, and I'm going to, I'm going to start my own my own uh, magazine. This is what he said. <laughs> he said the renunciation is controversy brought this subject into bolder relief. This is seen in the doctrine of the atonement, which I wrote in 1882. The doctrine of the atonement sent in manuscript to Brother Roberts, who, after perusal, said that it was the best thing that had been written on the subject and undertook to publish it. The principles it contains are set forth in the blood of the covenant. I fully believe they were held by all Christadelphians, excepting those who had endorsed renunciationism. But the arguments with which I have been opposed show that this was not so, or that there has been a change of belief in order to maintain resurrection out of Christ. The consequence is that the teaching of Dr. Thomas on sin and its removal is now nullified by some who profess to uphold it. This will be seen by the following. And here is what he says. This is what Robert Roberts is printing in 1894. The idea of imputing the sin of Adam to helpless babes is one of the old monstrosities of papalized theology. The theory of legal guilt through Adam is subversive to every principle of divine justice. The contention that those who have been baptized are free from Adamic condemnation is absurd. Baptism is never proposed to us as a means of getting rid of Adam's sentence. As for the righteousness of Christ, this is the righteousness of Christ and no one else's. The word saint applies only to those who have finally attained to immortality. Jesus was not a sinner in Adam. Christ was not alienated from God. 
The death of Christ was not a punishment. Christ's death was purely a matter of choice. It was unnecessary for Christ to have been nailed to the tree except as part of the obedience the Father required. The scriptures never use the word cleanse in reference to Christ's own sin nature. Bloodshedding is never spoken of except in connection with actual sin. Well, when you read that, you have to consider that the Christadelphian magazine was an amended magazine because this is amended doctrine. Who changed? We're all aware of the various brethren and ecclesias that are openly courting reunion with the amended. They are openly questioning and chipping away at these doctrines which have divided us all these years. Light versus covenant, hereditary alienation, the nature of Christ, and so on. A few years back, two young brothers made a display of going over to the amended and very publicly and I think viciously attacking unamended beliefs. Why? Why is the truth so hard to maintain? What's the motivation? What is the appeal? You know, I don't know, is it, is it self-doubt? How can so many be so wrong? Do they value fellowship and socialization over doctrine? You know, I, I really don't think that's it. Uh, maybe some of them have a surface understanding, but to go over is one thing. To come back and viciously attack seems to be something else. So I'm not sure what's going on here. But it does force us to look at our own community and ask how strong we are. Do our classes and our lectures reflect our awareness of the fragile nature of our community? Do we teach foundations? Do we openly discuss with our young people the differences between amended and unamended beliefs? Or is that just considered too impolite, too divisive, offensive, and controversial? After all, it will make some uncomfortable. Christ made the scribes and the Pharisees uncomfortable. And if that's what it takes to get someone to listen, then that's probably a good thing. And if on top of this we publicly distance ourselves from Brother Andrew, with, and particularly without voicing strong support for his defense, don't we play into the hands of those who malign him? In summary, I guess I suggest that Brother Andrew is both an a defender and an offender. An offender in his last four years for circumstances which may very well have been beyond his control. He, but he is due credit and praise for his defense. And he is due compassion for his late life single issue extreme. And in this area, is he not due at least the compassion and forbearance that we extend to amended brethren and their extremes? I suggest that the unamended community not only benefited from, but they, oh, I think we owe our existence to the tireless efforts of Brother Andrew and Brother Williams. Otherwise, that would have become our doctrine. Brother Andrew was a powerful writer. His ideas are presented clearly and succinctly. After Thomas Williams, I prefer Brother Andrew's writings uh, in terms of readability. They're well documented. His sanctuary keepers are a valuable contribution to any unamended uh, library. 
and we should not discourage the use of or reading of his works. We readily read amended works. We even read non-Christadelphian works, confident that we can separate truth from error. Why should Brother Andrew's works be frightening in any respect? Do we not owe to ourselves, our community, and indeed to Brother Andrew, understanding and fairness and certainly recognition for his contributions? Thank you.